In this episode of Guhuna Akduahian, we hear from Jazz McCann. Jazz is a teacher, an author, and former blanket man, and knew Joe McDonnell well from his time in the H-Blocks. In today's podcast, he reflects on the man he knew, the determination that drove him, and the love he held for his family and comrades. I first met Joe McDonnell in Crumlin Road Jail, October 1976. I had heard him before, but I had never actually met him. Although from conversations afterwards, I realized that I I had come across him a couple of times. Joe was originally from Slate Street in the Lower Falls. And in the mid sixties, he moved up to Anderson's in the Ramon area. And he married Greta, who also lived locally. And they set up house in Horn Drive and were actually burnt out in 72. Following that, Joe was interned on the Maidstone and he was interned actually a second time in Long Cash. So therefore he had, he had quite a reputation. Um, I was in the IRA in Lenardoon, which was called F Company. Joe wasn't, uh, while he was from Lenardoon, he was never involved in, and certainly when I was out, he was never involved in, in F Company. I do know that he was involved in A Company, and that's mostly where he, he had his friends and he would have frequented in that remote Tullymore area. And um, possibly that's why, you know, he, he wanted to be an A Company rather, rather than F Company. Um, and I do know um, that he was involved in a, a, a murder squad. That's murder as in M-O-R-T-A-R. Um, he was involved in that, I know, for about six or seven months. And then whenever I was in jail, I heard that um, he had actually transferred to Lenardoon, but I wasn't there. And Joe was caught then, uh, along with Bobby Sands and several others, um, on a bomber mission. And he ended up, as I said already, ended up in Crumlin Road Jail. And being from Lenardoon then, um, it was great to see Joe in, and along with uh, several other Lenardoon men. And we tend to be quite parochial. And what we do when anyone comes in right away, because, you know, they've just been through days in, in, in Castle Ray, um, haven't seen anybody quite shattered, to say the least. And therefore, we would say to them, OK, what do you need? You know, we'll get the cigarettes, we'll get your fruit, we'll get your biscuits. You know, all those small provisions, we'll get your newspapers. I always remember Joe, I mean, the first thing he wanted was cigarettes. Uh, and as I got to know him better down through the years in jail, you see that um, Joe would do quite a lot to get a cigarette. And he did do quite a lot to get, to, get, to get a cigarette. And it was hard times getting a cigarette, but he always seemed to manage. Um, also, what I remember about Joe as well, he asked for cowboy books. Um, and I did find that those, those men who were, say, you know, from their mid-twenties up, um, I think it was that particular era where, where they were into cowboys and Indians, and they did tend to ask for cowboy books. Now, he didn't limit himself to cowboy books, but definitely that was one of his favourite. Uh, there was a series of books, I can't remember an author who, who, wrote, who wrote those particular books, and he always used to ask about them. So it was great having Joe, great having someone local. And I say the Lenardine lads, just like the Dairy lads and the Ardoin lads and Short Strand and the Throne, were tended to be very procal and, you know, um, coalesce together. Now, unfortunately, in a couple of months, uh, I was moved up to Hitch Blocks. And shortly after that, I was sentenced. So I didn't see Joe again. I didn't see Joe until it was, I think it was about October 
October 1977, so we're talking almost a year later. October 1977, uh, whenever I was in uh, Hitch Block 5 on the blanket, I had heard that um, Joe and Bobby Sands and Seamus Finucane and, and several others had been sentenced. They'd been sentenced actually a few weeks before that, but they didn't come up because there was, um, uh, let's say it was a fracas in the court courtroom, and Joe, typical Joe, I think he uh, smacked a screw. I think the screw was pulling him along by the handcuffs and Joe told him to stop it and he didn't. And so Joe, Joe basically emptied him. And then a whole fight started and Seamus and Joe and Bobby then ended up in the boards in Crumlin Road Jail because um, they wanted being vindictive rather than send them up to the H-blocks where basically you, know, you, you, you were in solitary confinement anyway. They, they wanted to inflict the punishment themselves. So they spent about three or four weeks, I believe, uh, in B-Wing, in what's called the boards, um, on the blanket. And then they come up to H5. And thankfully, Seamus and Bobby Sands and Joe come into our wing. So I was delighted that they come in because of them. Strong committed Republicans who had a lot of experience because all three had been in jail before. As I said, Joe was interned, Seamus was interned, and Bobby had done time as well in a long case. Um, he was sentenced, I can't remember what it was for. So they, they were a great asset to the wing and, and brought so much to the wing. And, you know, the crack was always good with them, and of course others, but particularly them, particularly Joe and Bobby, who were big, big personalities. Um, I was at the top of the wing, and Joe was at the bottom, um, and we, we, we tended to communicate um, through the window, but you know, that, the conversation then would have been limited to what side of the wing you were on, and also within a certain area, like two or three cells maximum either way, so therefore a conversation would have taken place over about eight, eight prisoners in the round. Um, you could also communicate through the pipes, and that would be basically one-to-one. -one. And then, of course, very popular, you would communicate out the doors, and that would be for the whole wing. A lot of the conversation took place out the windows. Um, so, therefore, when I was at the top of the wing and Joe was at the bottom, I missed out on quite a lot of his crack because, uh, as I said, a lot of conversations without the windows. Thankfully, um, again, everything seemed to be in years. So I think about a year later, maybe less than a year, uh, it would have been 78 anyway, um, I was moved to the very bottom of the wing. And therefore, I was able to benefit from, from Joe and his crack. And, I, you know, as I said, we tend to be quite parochial. So, um, you know, we're discussing local area and so on. And Joe would have had an awful lot of scale. Um, again, I don't know where he managed it. He always seemed to... He's a, he's a born survivor, Joe. And very much into cigarettes, as I've said. And he actually took responsibility for the cigarettes on our side of the wing. And another fellow who was very much into cigarettes as well, John Thomas, known as JT, who unfortunately died of COVID last year. JT would look after his side of the wing. And what would happen is they would divide it up and they would break the, this, the touching, as it's called, tobacco down, and they would use a Bible or toilet paper to roll cigarettes to a smaller size and try and spread it throughout for all the smokers. Joe would have been responsible then, as I said, for looking after the touching on his side of the wing. 
and he would have, uh, if the touching just came to our side, then he would divide it up for the other side. What he would do, he would, he would be in charge of what we call shooting the button. He would shoot the button across to JT. JT would shoot his button. The lens would entangle, and then you would have a connection between the two sides of the wing. And then Joe would uh, attach the touching or the cigarettes if he rolled them, and JT would pull them across. And likewise, JT, when their side touched for touching, um, then JT would send it across to Joe. Initially, Joe was in the cell with Michael Ferguson. And Michael Ferguson, you was a Cynthia councillor, he also has passed away. Uh, Michael Ferguson was a, a real Gilgore, and he was able to pass some of that on to Joe whenever when he was with him. And then what happened after that, and a year or two later, whenever uh, we entered, whenever we escalated, or the protest was escalated, Joe was able to do uh, what's called a scorcher. Now, he didn't, he didn't scorch across from wing to wing. There was others that did that. Joe was selected to pick the scorch across the H4 and H3, which required somebody who, you know, would have a big, loud voice, and obviously Joe fulfilled that. And it was quite ironic because he was shouting across the H4 and his brother was there. Frankie was there. And I always used to wonder how, wonder how Frankie felt when he would hear Joe's voice booming across at him at, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 across the H4 at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, whenever the, the screws had left the wings. Um, we communicated on a regular basis with the other blocks. Now, quite often that was through comms and then we'd be passed through the visits. But if something urgent was happening or if there was bad wing moves and so on, then we'd be shared across to each other. You know, you might, Joe might have shared across, you know, Katahara and you, what happened today? And H4 probably was shouted over, you know, there's a blue shock down, it was a bad move, you know, a Willu, Octor Far, August Trier, Aquium, Go down. you know, eight men were hurt during the move and three of them were bad. That's what I mean. we, 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 we kept note of those things. And also, whenever the beatings and so on intensified, for example, H4 had a really bad week and they were called out the shock in Donna whenever there was a lot of the lads were severe, severely hurt. And you did find that, you know, that sometimes the the beatings, the intensity of the beatings and the harassment, well, you know, which came in many forms, you know, it could be simply banging doors at all hours, it could be leaving lights on. A big favourite moment was tampering with food, um, and of course the beatings themselves, and then in later years, hosing and so on. You know, it, it could happen, say, whenever the IRA did a particular operation outside. And then the screws might do something like um, cut back on our rations or tamper with our rations and so on. I'll always remember um, a particular screw who was quite infamous in the wing and he was going around the block um, passing in the food. And with the, the, the portions were very small and it was, we, we got half a fish of even and he came to Joe's door and Joe said to him, what's this? And he says, it's, it's, it's a fish, Joe. Right, because um, that mean they had a lot of respect because they were very worried of Joe. Um, if any of us had said anything, um, we would have been in trouble. Not not with Joe. Uh, Joe was a very physically strong person, uh, and they were well aware of this. And therefore, as I said, to tread it carefully when they were going near Joe. And Joe said, um, "Where is the fish?" And the this particular screw went scurrying back up the wing, back down again with a full fish. Uh, for Joe, uh, and Joe said, and what about the rest of the lads? Was there a fish? And he just says, oh, it's just for you, Joe. And Joe says, 
get the rest of the lads. And the, the door was closed, that was it. Obviously, he didn't get the rest of the lads, but the thing is, the very fact that this infamous screw, who was very much involved in the beatings, led the beatings, actually, um, and yet Joe was able to make, well, I'm going to say, a wee boy of him. And then Joe just told him to take himself off. Uh, because obviously the rest of the lads lost out and he wasn't he wasn't going to take a full face for the rest of us. We're getting half a face. But that was typical of him. Um, as I said, very, very strong character. Very, very committed. He refused to wear the prison clothes. Refused to wear it. So Joe, therefore, would not take visits. Now, Joe was married with, with, with two children and, you know, very, very passionate about his children and his wife spoke incessantly about them. He lived for the day whenever he would see them again. But he always believed that he would walk out wearing his own clothes, victorious, have our political status, and that's the way he would see his wife and his children. And he was absolutely convinced that would be the case. And he had us convinced too that we were going to get political status even in times there, whenever things were really bad and maybe there was a lot of setbacks, Joe was always, always the forward, always positive, always optimistic, always upbeat, no matter what. He was always certain that the day will come when we will get our political status. He always used to say about the brown bags, brown bags was euphemism for um, political status. Whenever we went on the blanket, they took all the possessions and put them in a brown bag. Nowadays, they cut their black bags. In those days, they were paper brown bags. And he always used to say, it'll not be long now before the brown bags would come into the wing. And not only that, he had everything organised as well for the brown bags coming into the wing. He had his wee click all organised, um, you know, this is where we're going to operate. We're going to have, we're going to have parcels and such and such today. You're going to do that day. Um, Sean's going to do the other day. Jerry's going to do that day. We're going to be making handicrafts. And, you know, he would have dictated what way the handicrafts are going to work. So he had it all worked out to tea as if, like, it was actually going to happen tomorrow. And that's the way it was, you know, very, very optimistic. But, you know, I think he did it as well just to keep morale up. It was as if he took on that mantle of looking after the morale in the wing. He could talk for Ireland. I know he had so many stories to tell, so he was, it was great listening to him. He had a big personality, a bubbly personality, and he was full of life. He just never seemed to stop. He never wanted a quiet wing. Something had to be organised in the wing. And if something, somebody wasn't volunteering or somebody hadn't organised something, Joe would be up at the door making sure that something was going on and he would be um, putting pressure on people, cajoling them, promising them in the world and so on to organise something because he never, ever wanted a wing to be quiet. He wanted a wing to be like himself. He wanted a wing to be buzzing. He wanted to hear laughter. He wanted to hear voices. And therefore, he always, always ensured that something was going to happen in the wing. I think again that he regarded a quiet wing as a wing which could possibly, morale could drop, um, that people which would away go into themselves, that um, people could even become somewhat despondent and also would send out a wrong message to the screws as well. Um, he wanted the wing to be uplifting. He wanted the wing, as I said, to be like himself, to be buzzing, and he made sure, he made damn sure that that 
always, always happened. And he was always there too, you know, those particular times when morale was low. I mean, there were some very, very bad wind shifts when, when, when people were, were brutalised. And, you know, and basically I would say that a lot of us just wanted to lie down in the corner, lick our wounds and probably feel sorry for ourselves. And Joe, after, after situations like that, the first person up again would be Joe McDonnell, up to his door, up to the window, with his, with his humour, with his, with his dark humour, you know, he's very, very, he was renowned for a particular comment, which was after particular bad wing shifts and so on, he would say, lads, there's going to be uh, bad days for these good days. And then the wing would just erupt because, um, you know, it's a case of he never lies down and you have to admire him. Now, as I said, he didn't take visits and yet... He had his own communication system going. He had various people in the wing who would have been sending out comms uh, to his family. And then, of course, Greta and other members of his family would have been running the country for Joe, getting comms, getting chocked rocks, back in through the visits to Joe again. So we had a situation where Joe didn't take visits, but Joe would know, know more about the world than anybody else in the wing who even took visits. And of course, he loved sharing all the information um, from the, the chapter rocks um, to the rest of the lads. As soon as he got a chapter, right away, it was up the window, lads, and we'd hear what's happening in the outside world. And of course, a lot of that too was about, about, his, about, his, about his children, who he was very, 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 very passionate about. Uh, it was no surprise um, that Joe was one of those who was in favour of hunger strike. Nobody wanted hunger strike, but we had exhausted all means that were at our disposal to try and put pressure on the British government to achieve political status. And we had come to a cul-de-sac, we couldn't come any further. And of course, hunger strike was always there in the background. We did everything we could to avoid it. And Joe would have been involved with, with the staff. Um, we got out on a Sunday to go to Mass and he would have been in the back at the Mass um, along with members of staff and obviously talk, discussing strategy. I do recall some of the um, some of the, last, some of the leaders were moved out of the wings and moved up to H6 and then we heard the rumour that H6 were going to have a hunger strike to coincide with the visit of the Pope. I can recall Joe wasn't too pleased about that because as far as he was concerned um, there's three other blocks here. Everyone should be involved uh, in a hunger strike, as in being told exactly what's happening, and having the opportunity as well to volunteer for a hunger strike. And whenever that rumour came down and Joe was talking about it, I knew from that day on that Joe was very, very determined about a hunger strike. And I knew, knowing Joe as it did, that Joe was most definitely going to go on that hunger strike. Totally committed. And I remember whenever the H6 ones come down, he was speaking to some of the lads, some of the staff, that, that, that Sunday at Mass. And whenever he came back, he was telling me that um, they're planning on a hunger strike and he's going to be involved. Cardinal O'Fake heard about this and Cardinal O'Fake um, put pressure on, on the staff, asking us to hold back while he had um, discussions with Humphrey Atkins. So the, the hunger strike then was postponed. But Joe 
as I said, was prepared to go on hunger strike. And I, from that period on, I know Joe was conditioning his wife and family for the event of him going on hunger strike. The talks failed. We were told that we were going to get, we we're going to get our own clothes, but apparently at the last minute, Thatcher overruled that and they, just, they said it was going to be prison issue clothes, which of course was totally unacceptable. So a hunger strike was called for and there was seven on it. I was a bit disappointed whenever the hunger strike was escalated on, uh, I think it was the 15th of December. There was another, I think it was 27 to 30, went on it and he wasn't selected. I think he wasn't selected because someone, uh, somewhere along the line, someone had said that um, he had an injury and also the fact that he was married. But obviously, Joe was fine. Joe was strong. There was nothing wrong with Joe. So no surprise then, whenever the second hunger strike is declared, Joe was to replace in the event of Bobby Dan, Bobby Sands Dan, Joe was to replace him. Bobby and Beck knew well that um, Joe McDonald, as Bobby said himself, Joe McDonald will never let you down. So Joe was to, to replace Bobby. He was he was given the number number one hunger strike. There was there was there was a rumor at one stage. I remember saying that Joe didn't go on the first hunger strike because he had too much to live. Well, we I mean we all had too much to live for, but that was absolute nonsense. Joe, as I said, was determined from day one that there's going to be a hunger strike, and he he would he would be one of the ones that would go on it. So Bobby Sands died, as we know. Unfortunately, we did hope that the Fermanagh uh, South Tyrone election would have saved his life, becoming an MP. It didn't happen. And then Joe was to replace him. There was a bit of tension, I have to say, um, as Joe waited on word coming in for him to go on the hunger strike. And there was, there was, there was a gap there of, of three, four days. He was very concerned because he was very concerned about his family because he had conditions his family that he was going on the hunger strike. And I'm sure they were wondering, you know, what is happening, as he was too. So word did come in one night. It was actually coming on the Quailhorn, the radio that we had smuggled in, that Joe McDonald's was going on hunger strike the next day. So that's how Joe got word. And he just hoped that his family would have been informed before that and, 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 and not, not through the radio. So he was, uh, I would say that, that released a lot of attention, actually, believe it or not, the fact that he was told he'd go on hunger strike the next day. And, I mean, again, we had a bit of crack with him because he was looking forward then. He was very excited because he was going to see his wife and he's going to see his children then the next day. But I couldn't help feeling sorry for him. He was so sure, so optimistic and so upbeat that he was going to have a visit, wearing his own clothes, going out to see his family, victorious, political status. And now here was his visit, um, where his, basically his life hung in balance. Of course, we didn't, they didn't say that to Joe. I mean, we kept going, kept Joe going all night, just saying that, with a grand season that we, we called Joe Shasuwara, which is fat Joe. No, he wasn't really fat, but he had put on weight, unlike the rest of us, he had put on weight. And we said, whenever grand season, you know, if you're fat, she'll, she'll leave you. And then went, again, that was part of the humour. Um, and it was good, it was good crack. But as I said, I just couldn't help feeling sorry. So next day I had the visit, again, come back, bubbly Joe. Couldn't wait to tell everybody how it went, but you could see too that, um, you know, there was a different tone to his, to his crack this time. You could see that, 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 that um, it was hurting him a bit to see his family and to see his family on those conditions. Um, but it clearly did affect him. And Joe got moved. Um, they moved him up to the top of the wing. They isolated him as they did. As they did, they isolated him. And always as part of this psychological pressure on people. 
And so when we missed out on his crack and you could feel there was a big gap left after him going. I did see him at Mass and we would talk away at Mass and of course Joe would be the usual still running about trying to score in cigarettes and so he never stopped. I mean, even, I mean, even when he went up to the, the prison hospital, he was still the same, looking for cigarettes. And making sure everybody else had cigarettes as well. Um, he, he wrote down his tellings all about how he was getting cigarettes and how he was looking after the rest of the lads and so on. Uh, he never stopped. Joe and the rest of the lads um, didn't want to let us down. I mean, Joe had a, and the rest of the lads had an awful lot of responsibility on their shoulders. And of course, they didn't let us down. They didn't let us down. As we moved into the, the 50s, Joe, Joe was on a hunger strike for 50 plus days. Um, the momentum really started to build. Of course, we had the election as well. And... Joe stood in, 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 in Sligo, Sligo Leitrim, and came so close to being elected. And then we had the Irish Commission of Justice Peace. They intervened. And there was strong talk that there was, that there was going to be concessions. There was a possibility we were going to get a close. And while well, we shouldn't have, our hopes were built up again. And we felt that there's a possibility of a breakthrough as it moves. You know, we've moved, Joe moved into 60 days and we were quite hopeful maybe that his life was going to be saved and that, that there would be a breakthrough and that, that there would be enough concessions for a resolution or even something for us to build on. And, you know, the rally at the top was McDonald's going to be hard to stick because uh, he's going to be telling everyone he's responsible for getting political status. So again, we had a, a bit of crack about that. And then Joe died. It was very sudden. Um, and we're quite shocked because it just it happened so quick. I don't know exactly, you know, how, how people survive in, in hunger strike, but Joe was a physically very strong person. Um, and I haven't seen others, and you know, you, you say Joe, Joe's going to go 70 days plus because he's so strong, and we're hoping, you know, that he was going to hang in there during these negotiations. And possibly even the Brits were playing brinkmanship. Uh, and possibly thought the same, that Joe, you know, was strong now, he's going to last much longer. And I remember t talking to, to Greta about this and asking her, because, I mean, he went so quick in the end, and I said, Greta, what happened to Joe? He's so strong. Um, and yet now he went so quick. And Greta said that the procedure had been, the families were allowed in. She was allowed in to visit him every day. And then they stopped that. They gave no reason, they just stopped that. And she said whenever she eventually did get back in again, she said the change in Joe was dramatic. And possibly then this is a psychological pressure again that they were applying. And Joe just, just faded after that. I said the wing was totally shocked whenever we heard that um, Joe had died. The wing was never, never ever the same again.